Have you ever snapped at something that's really small, really trivial, and absolutely meaningless? Of course you have. I won't ask you to go into specifics. I will do that for you. Uh, in the weeks leading up to Christmas each year, I have a kindred spirit with Clark Griswold of National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Uh, if you don't know Mr. Griswold, he is very into Christmas decorations, but that's not the reason why I feel a kindred spirit with Mr. Griswold. It's because, like Clark Griswold, I very easily get upset at setting up Christmas decorations, <laughs> especially when things go wrong. To mix the movie metaphors, I become like Joe Pesci in Home Alone, trying his best not to swear in a PG movie. <laughs> so this past Christmas, I went to strand up the Christmas lights outside, and I made novice mistake after novice mistake. I'm what the kids call a noob at uh, Christmas lights. Uh, silly me, I assumed that the string of lights that worked the previous Christmas season, that those strings of lights would work this Christmas season. So do I need to plug them in and test them out before? No, why did I need to do that? I just strung them up anyway. Lo and behold, plug them in, guess what? They don't work. I have to take them all the way down again. You would think I'd learned my lesson from this, right? Well, this time you would be assuming wrongly and not me. I strung up another string of lights just to test it out again. Everything's all set up, go to plug it in. This time, half of the string of lights worked. And so I felt like my dad, I used one of his famous taglines. I just looked at the whole thing and said, eh, good enough. <laughs> but the novice mistakes weren't done after that. No, no, no. As I set up all these Christmas lights, I had to redo it time and time again because I failed to plan them all converging on one point to get into one outlet. I set them up in the wrong directions. Just goes to show, book smarts don't always translate to street smarts. I'll be the first one to say that. Well, this all led to me, this whole frustrating time, to grab a blanket from the garage, lay on the cold, hard concrete of my driveway, take the blanket and scream with all of my might into it. Now, common advice of today would say that it was good for me to do that. That it's good to express and voice and vent your anger instead of bottling it up. Uh, we don't have time to poke all the holes in that common advice. Uh, but we can say that much of our anger is just ridiculous and altogether just unreasonable. But having said that, though, we come to this passage in the, this portion of the book of Mark, where Jesus seems to get mad at a tree, of all things, get mad at a tree. And then he goes on to flip some tables. And if we aren't careful, we could say that this passage is all about how we should express and vent our anger. Now, unlike most weeks, this entire introduction was set up to show you what the main point of the passage is not. At first blush, 
This passage might show us Jesus in a very uncharacteristic light, different than we're used to seeing him. But when we look closely and we keep in mind the greater context of the book of Mark, the greater context of what the Bible teaches about the themes addressed in this passage, we can get a better understanding of what Jesus is actually doing here in this part of Mark 11. This means each week, friends, we just want to do the hard work, not always hard, sometimes harder than others, but the work of uncovering the intended meaning of whatever passage of the Bible is in front of us. So that the meaning of the passage is the meaning and the main point of the sermon. This is reading and preaching the Bible on its own terms. So why don't we do that today? Turn with me to Mark chapter 11 and find verse 12. If you're looking at the, one of the Bibles provided, it's red, it looks like this. You'll find it on page 847. We'll be in Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. If you're new to the Bible, the chapter numbers, so the 11 is that big, bold number. The verse numbers are the little numbers that come after the big, bold numbers. So Mark 11, verses 12 to 25. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the table of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were, asked and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when the evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by it in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, also who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. This is God's word. Elohe, Eme, Aimne, Iswe, Iste. Iswe, Isne, Ute, Itme, Uye. Did anyone get that? That's pig Latin for, hello, my name is Steve, it's nice to meet you. This passage might feel a little like pig Latin. So what's the key to cracking the code? How do we know what this passage is trying to accomplish, especially with this scene of the fig tree? Well, I think the way Mark structures this passage gives us a huge clue. 
As you notice, it, in most versions, it's going to be broken down into three different paragraphs. So you have stuff about the fig tree, then you have the temple, and then you come back to the fig tree. Mark does this throughout his gospel over and over again. He does this so much that scholars of the book of Mark actually call this a Markan sandwich. Now, unless you're like me and you take the buns off your sandwich because you're trying to watch your carbs, you know that sandwiches are meant to be consumed as a whole. The buns go along with the meat. It's meant to be a whole entity. So what that tells us here is that this must mean the meat of this passage about the temple must be communicating the same truth as the buns of this passage about the fig tree. So the scene in the temple gives us a clue about what Jesus is doing with the fig tree. So both of these scenes communicating the same truth, which makes Jesus' uh, cursing of the fig tree less of a Griswold-like rage at an inanimate object and more of an acted-out parable of what happens in the temple. So we put all these together. I think the main takeaway, the main point, way to summarize this entire passage is that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple. Now, what's the big deal? Well, that means Jesus brings God's promises and redeems our sinfulness and is therefore worthy of our singular heart focus and sincere confidence. Jesus is the true temple. He brings God's promises, redeems our sinfulness, which means we should have a singular heart focus and sincere confidence. Now, as we close last week's passage, it's often referred to as the triumphal entry. We left off Jesus in verse 11, standing in the temple alone, so that it's less of a triumphal entry and more of an anticlimactic entry. Now, the chapters of Mark 11 all the way through chapter 15 cover just about one week of Jesus' life, often referred to as Holy Week. So we started on Sunday, Palm Sunday. Today we are on Monday. And it tells us just this much of the portion of the book devoted to one week tells us how important this week is. But also when we cover through this week, a lot of it takes place in and around the temple. And that includes today's passage. So if we're meant to bite this passage like a sandwich, experience it as a whole, then we can't expect to understand the true significance of what Jesus does here without understanding the background of the temple in Jerusalem. It'd be like taking a third grader to the New York Stock Exchange right on Wall Street. You're going right into the middle of all the action with all the buzz, with all the whistles, with all the commotion, and tell her, okay, explain it all to me. No knowledge of finance, no knowledge of economics, no knowledge of stocks. You need to know a little bit of the background in order to understand what's going on. So if you asked any ancient Israelites to tell you where the most important place in the entire world is, what would they say? Disney World? Uh, Brown Stadium? Nah, they weren't around back then. They would tell you the temple in Jerusalem. The temple was where God took up residence among his people. It was a sacred place where Israel's priests entered into God's presence on their people's behalf 
to express thanks, to express confession, to express praise through different sacrifices of animals and other things. So the very construction and design of the temple itself was meant to tell this story that stretched back even further into ancient times, back all the way to the beginning. So the temple included designs and patterns meant to represent the Garden of Eden, the original sanctuary, the place where people lived in the presence of God, met him face to face. But what do we know about what happened in the Garden of Eden? It did not last. Early on in the story, we were banned from the Garden of Eden because of our sin. And so a sword was placed at the entrance of the garden, symbolizing that if people are going to be restored to peace with God, back to his presence, they will have to undergo and go through the sword because of judgment for what they have done. But the story of the temple shows the heart of God's grace, God's heart to dwell with his people, God's heart to seek out his people. And as the story continues, we see that heart on full display. So God chose one family out of the nations of the earth, and eventually he took up residence again among them after bringing them out of slavery from Egypt. Now at first, before these people were settled in a land, he took up residence in what's known and called the tabernacle. It's basically a transportable tent. This is where his people could draw near to meet God. Now, the actual throne room of this sanctuary, the tabernacle, was called the Holy of Holies. This was separated by a thick curtain barrier. It's kind of like the sword that was placed outside the Garden of Eden. And so the high priest who represented the people could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And he had to go under the sword. He had to present a sacrifice symbolically paying to atone for the sin of the people in order to enter God's presence. So later, the story of the tabernacle and the temple continues. God's people are actually settled in a land, and God allowed his people to construct a permanent structure under King Solomon. And this is the temple in Jerusalem. But again, like the Garden of Eden, it didn't last the books of Joshua, all the way through 2 Kings, tell how Israel entered the promised land, rebelled against God, and dishonored the temple in Jerusalem. And so after centuries of patience, God handed Israel and its temple over to the nations of Assyria and Babylon. We saw that in the book of Isaiah. So it's like Adam and Eve banished from the garden all over again. So after 70 years of exile, in different nations. The Israelites return to, it, to their land. They return to Jerusalem and rebuild a temple. But those who saw the old temple knew that it wasn't the same. Nowhere near the splendor, much smaller. That's why the biblical prophets, like Ezekiel, which we read earlier, promised a new temple and a new David to build it promised that it would be much grander even than the original, how the Lord's glory will fill it, and how it will become so large that the nations of the earth will come to it and come into it. This is where we are in Mark 11 in the point of the story of the temple, still waiting 
still waiting for that greater temple, that greater David. All of that is what goes behind this scene. And we say, Steve, this, that's a lot of background. That's more background than most weeks. Well, I think the truth it communicates is something like what happens. Bear with me for a second. It's something that what happens when you pull into the driveway at Starbucks. You go over here, Starbucks, right around the corner, two minutes away, pull into the drive-thru, and you see the window there, and you will be advertised to, just like we are advertised to everywhere. And the advertising you'll see in Starbucks window is just a little sticker trying to pique your interest in getting to apply for a job at Starbucks. And the tagline is, be a part of something bigger than yourself. That's the tagline. It's effective. It's a desire we all share, to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. But friends, if you look at the story of the temple, of God wanting to dwell and restore peace to his people, what could be bigger than that? This is cosmic level stuff. And this, friends, this story is the story that we as Christians are included in. You are a part of that story. And if you're not a Christian this morning, you can be a part of that story. So a lot of background, I know, but it's going to help us understand what's going on here better. While the people were waiting for, the God, for God to promise and to bring about the greater temple and the greater king to come, they failed to live out God's intention for the temple. It reminds us that just one of sin's effects is that we just, we have an uncanny ability to mess up good things. Uncanny ability. You think about this, even, even in little things. We took the good gift of ice cream and made frozen yogurt. <laughs> we took the good gift of bacon and we made turkey bacon. People took the good gift of the temple and made it into what it was in Jesus' day. Uncanny ability to mess up good gifts. So let's, let's see what's going on here in Mark 11. Start with the fig tree scene. Mark, as always, he sets it up for a little bit for us. This is the next day. This is Monday of Holy Week. Jesus was staying in the town of Bethany. Uh, as Dean pointed out uh, during the devotion of last week's Sunday evening service, uh, Bethany means house of poor. It was less than two miles from Jerusalem. Uh, he described it like the East Cleveland of Cleveland. Uh, so thank you, Dean. That was a helpful image for me. Now, there's a little tidbit you notice in verse 12 that speaks of Jesus' genuine humanity. You see that there? He was hungry. Jesus was hungry. Just a clue that Jesus experienced the same weaknesses as you and me, even in something as basic as being hungry. Now, being hungry, there's no McDonald's 2,000 years ago, so the form of fast food was picking off food from trees. In that region, so we see here fig trees, fig trees normally began to grow leaves around March or April. This would be that time of the year here in Mark 11. This is the time of the Passover in March or April. So it produced leaves during this time, then produced its full fruits in the month of June when all the leaves are already out. Now, this, knowing that, it makes this tree unique and surprising 
because it was already full of leaves during the time of Passover. Again, late March, early April. Since there were already a bunch of leaves, one would expect there to be some early fruit along with it also, even though it wasn't the typical season for fruit. The leaves were already there. So when Jesus curses the fig tree, it's important to remember at first that nothing is said of his emotional state, but it's also important to remember that Jesus is talking about more than a fig tree. We know this because the Bible employs the image of a fig tree when it speaks of judgment, very often employs the image of a fig tree when it speaks of the nation of Israel. But like we said already, when we remember what comes right after this scene, it helps us know what's going on in this scene with the fig tree a little bit better. The scene in the temple will help explain Jesus' cursing of the fig tree. You see, the fig tree was like the temple in that it gave the appearance of being fruitful and therefore gave people hope that they could be nourished by it. But it was actually barren. Gave the appearance of fruitfulness, but was actually barren. It should have had fruit, but it didn't. So let's go on to the next scene in the temple. We're in Jerusalem now. A little bit more background, I know. The Israelites rebuilt the temple after they returned from exile. You remember that. Well, we said that was not as good as the original temple, but Herod the Great began massive renovations and largely rebuilt that rebuilt temple so that it was one of the largest and most magnificent structures in the entire ancient world. This whole complex spanned about 35 acres. And around the perimeter of the temple, it was a covered portico built on massive 35-foot columns, taller than this room. This is where, likely, this, this scene takes place with Jesus and the tables. Now, within this outer portion of the temple, you have kind of fences that go inside one another. So all the way out on the outside is what's known as the court of the Gentiles. This is where non-Jewish people could come to worship. And within that, further in, is the court of the women. Within that, further in, is the court of Israel, where Jewish men could go. And within that is the actual temple, with the holy place, and then with right in the center is the most holy place. We have kind of concentric circles. Think of maybe something like a Russian doll. So when it says that Jesus came to the temple... It likely refers to Jesus being in the very outer court, probably the court of the Gentiles. We see his comment in verse 17. He says, it's, this temple is meant for the nations. Gives a clue where he might be during this time. Now, what's going on? What's going on when Jesus arrives to this part of the temple? Well, verse 15, Jesus finds money changers. These are those who exchanged currencies. They helped facilitate the temple tax. So each year, Jewish males 20 years, old and, 20 years old and up would have to pay a tax to maintain the temple. And this tax had to be in a certain currency. So these money changers helped facilitate that. So this is what he finds those people there. He also finds those who sell animals. So what would they do? Well, if you're coming to Jerusalem for Passover, it's kind of hard to bring along animals who you're that you're going to sacrifice. So why not just set up shop right outside the temple? And you could sell USDA certified temple sacrifices right outside the temple. And so 
What's the big deal with both of these groups? Trying to accomplish good things. Trying to make sure everything's done in good order. Good sacrifices are being made. Right currency is being used, following the rules. What's the big deal? Well, it's well known that in that day, those who exchanged currencies, those who sold animals, ripped people off. It's pretty well known. Just think of it. It's, think of it like the concessions at Cedar Point or the Browns game. Cedar Point knows that you have nowhere else to buy a bottle of water when you're standing on concrete and it's 96 degrees outside. They know you have to buy a bottle of water for them and they can charge as much as they want and you will pay for it. Even something like $5.50, you will pay that for a bottle of water. Kind of the same principle applies here. But that's not all. That's not all that was messed up about this situation. Where did these guys set up shop? The money changers, the animal sellers, set up shop within the confines of the temple. They set up shop specifically in the only place where the Gentiles could be. And so God's heart behind the temple, you think of how, how it's... What they're doing is the exact opposite of God's heart. God's heart is that people could draw near to him at the temple. But the people of Jesus' day turned the temple into something that kept people away from God, not helped them draw near to him. They cared about whether or not people had the right currency and the right sacrifice. They cared about their bottom line. But they didn't care about how they prevented the Gentiles from worshiping God in a meaningful way. That's why Jesus quotes Isaiah 56 in verse 17. That verse speaks of God extending salvation to people who were formerly excluded. It reflects God's original intention for the temple and for Israel to be a light to the nations around them. They weren't living out that intention. They weren't showing God's heart. They were distracted from it. So what does this scene show us? What do we learn from this scene? Well, even though we said anger isn't the main point of the passage, I think this scene does give us some clues into how to be angry and not sin. If you think about it, anger is defending something valuable that's threatened. Something that we find valuable that is being threatened. So Jesus, in this instance, is defending something valid. The purity of his house. He's defending God's intention for all peoples. He's defending the right of those who are outsiders. But also we see in Jesus's, what Jesus does, that his anger does lead him to do something drastic, but it does not lead him to do something sinful. So can, friends, just think about this. Can you evaluate your anger with, in these two ways? Just asking yourself, are, in this situation, all right, I'm upset. What am I defending? Is it worth defending? Is this something valid to defend? And is this leading me to sin? What is my anger leading me to? Those are ways to evaluate your anger. So, you know, again, I'll be the guinea pig here. When I got upset at the Christmas lights, ultimately, I was defending my leisure time. Because that's what cut in to that. The Christmas, setting up the Christmas lights cut into my leisure time. 
and I want to guard that. I want me time. And when me time is cut into too much, I get upset. And that's what the Christmas lights showed. And that's what I was defending. I was not defending something valid. That anger is sinful. But these scenes, what do we learn from them? Mainly, these scenes are a warning to us. Whether the fig tree or the temple. They're a warning that it is very possible to have the appearance of being fruitful, but actually being barren. It is very possible to have the appearance of being fruitful, but actually being barren. So last week at the triumphal entry, we warned not to confuse enthusiasm with faith. This passage warns us not to confuse religious activity with faith. That's a key theme to the entire Bible. That we can go about religious activity with hearts that are very far from God, with hearts that don't love God. So let me just ask you, to those, to those who come to church week in, week out, who have established that routine, that, and that is a good routine, by the way, to those who have settled into a routine of different practices and disciplines of devotion, how is your heart? How is your heart in all of those practices, in all of those routines? Is your heart engaged in those routines? Or is it coasting? Are you close to the Lord in these acts? Or are you far from him? You know, the structures and disciplines of the Christian life, they're, good, they're meant for our good. They're meant to be regular. But they're not ends in themselves. They're meant to drive us to and keep us near the Lord. So is that how the spiritual disciplines of prayer and Sunday mornings and Bible readings and the Lord's Supper, is that how all those things and more are working in your heart? To stir your heart for love of God? To bring fruit? Or are all these just leaves and the fruit's not actually there? You know, that's one of the reasons why we have a moment of silence each week. Just because we know our tendencies to coast even through times of worship. Actually, not to engage. We want to work against that. So what do these scenes show us? Fig tree in the temple. I think they're a warning to us in another way. They're a warning that we can be distracted from the mission that God has called us to. We can be distracted from the mission God has called us to. So by setting up the marketplace in the place where Gentiles came to worship God, the people in Jesus' day forgot their mission to be a light to the Gentiles. Made me think of one quote I came across recently. It goes like this. It's hard to convince people that a God they can't see loves them when a church they can see doesn't seem to like them. When we forget God's heart of mercy that sought us out, when we forget that, we'll end up consumed with ourselves and forget our neighbors, forget the people who God has called us to. If you don't believe me, just read something like the Good Samaritan, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Who walked by the Good Samaritan? These were all good, upright, religious people who were too consumed with themselves and just passed by a man who was dying. 
And so, if we become bent in our, on ourselves, distracted from the mission that God has called us to, we can end up as those who have the hope that the world needs, have that hope ourselves, but actually keep it to ourselves. You know, one of the ways that churches can keep it to themselves and forget their mission and be distracted from their mission, one area that shows up is the area of money. Now, this is a bigger discussion. We have lots of room to grow in this ourselves at Old Oak. But one of the ways churches can do this is spending so much money on themselves and treating missions and global missions like a tip jar or an afterthought. You think about it here in the temple, the people's drive to make money is what distracted them from ministry. Think here in the Church of America, friends, we've been given so much. We think of that as an opportunity. What an opportunity to be effective for the Lord. Instead, we have building projects across our nation that cost millions upon millions of dollars. It's a case-by-case situation. I know there's a lot of nuance that goes into that. We want to be good stewards of, what we, uh, of our buildings. But, but still, spend so much on ourselves that we can forget the mission God's called us to. But it goes beyond money. I think it goes to our time. It goes to our words. It goes to our actions. You know, the Lord convicted me. I'll be the guinea pig again here this past week. Uh, every week... It seems like there are solicitors that come into our church building and try to sell us stuff that we don't need. And so naturally, like with most solicitors, you know, it's commonplace to be a little annoyed. It's an interruption. And so this week, lo and behold, it happened again. There are two gentlemen that came into the church building. I automatically knew I was not interested in buying what they were selling. And so I tried to be polite, tried to be gracious, but eventually just kind of dismissed them. What I could have done instead is ask these men, you know, you've taken a couple minutes of my time, which is okay. I don't want to hold on to it too much. Can I take a couple minutes of your time? Do you go to church anywhere? What is your faith? Like, where are you from? Maybe take two minutes to, to care for the people who the Lord has just placed in my path. Instead, I was too concerned with my own agenda. I was too concerned with keeping my schedule. I was too concerned with my own productivity. My selfish concerns distracted me from doing the ministry I've been called to. God, if you think about that, that happens to us all the time. All the time. Well, Jesus judged the temple for what it had became. The temple failed to reflect God's heart of mercy. And instead of bringing people to God, it kept people away from God. And when Jesus judges the temple, the chief priests and the scribes, those who ran and oversaw the temple, understood that Jesus was speaking against them also. So they took Jesus' words seriously, not because they were convicted by it, but because they knew other people took his words seriously. And so they felt threatened by Jesus. And they continued to plot against him in order to kill him. But as we see in verse 19, that conflict's tabled for now as Jesus and his disciples left the city. So just recap where we've been so far. 
God's heart behind the temple. God has a heart to restore sinners to peace with himself. That's what he's shown in the story of the temple. And that's what the people in Jesus' day had lost sight of. But in Jesus, the story of the temple has a culmination. Because he is the new and better temple. Jesus is the new and better temple. John 1 verse 14 says the word that is Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, it means tabernacled among us. In John, after Jesus cleanses the temple, after John tells of this, Jesus refers to his own body as the temple. He is the one who brings the very presence of God to the earth. He is the one who restores his people to peace with their maker. And how do we know this? How do we know that Jesus is the true and better temple? Well, when Jesus died on the cross, you might remember this. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple separate, that separates people from the presence of God, symbolic of the sword that we must go through if we were going to get back to God, the curtain in the temple, when Jesus died, tore from top to bottom. It's because Jesus went under the sword that prevented us from drawing near to God. He is the ultimate temple who brings God's presence. He is the ultimate high priest who represents us and gives us access to the Father. He is the ultimate sacrifice who paid the price for the penalty of our sin. Friends, look at Jesus. Fulfill God's plan in such a way that we failed to do, in such a way that we could never do. So those who feel just the brokenness of sin, your uncanny ability to screw up good things, friends, come to the only one who did it. Come to the Redeemer, the only Savior, the only way back to God the Father. So Jesus is the new and better temple. So what? What do we do now? Well, it's kind of the last paragraph of this section. What do we do now? Well, we have faith and we pray like we have faith. Have faith and pray like we have faith. This whole last paragraph starts with Peter, and he notices the fig tree that Jesus cursed right at the beginning of this scene was now withered. And Jesus takes this as an opportunity to encourage his disciples to have faith in God. So I have another head-scratching moment from Jesus, just because we ask you, what does the cursing of a fig tree have to do with having faith in God? What are you talking about, Jesus? Well, remember the context. Remember why Jesus cursed the fig tree, why Jesus cleansed the temple. It was because he was judging those who failed to bear fruit for God. That's what he was doing. So we can have faith, if we connect it to the previous scenes, we can have faith in God that God can remove whatever prevents us from bearing fruit for him. Just think about this. The longer we are Christians, the more aware of how easily we can get distracted, how easily we can just coast. We've already talked about that a lot. The longer we're Christians, we're, we're aware, more aware of of how easily we lose our first love, how easily we grow selfish and bent in on ourselves. We look back at each week when we gather into Sunday and look at what we did, how we were feeling. 
and just ask ourselves, why did I do that? I know better than that. Trusting in Jesus, we can have faith in the one who promised that he who began a good work in us will finish what he has started. We can have faith in that promise. Why should we have that kind of faith? Why should we have this confidence? Well, as Jesus said, it's because God can do anything. Look at verse 23. Jesus uses a common metaphor of his day to illustrate that God can do the impossible. He can move mountains. And Jesus goes on to apply having faith in God to how we pray. Not only can God remove whatever prevents us from bearing fruit for him, there's no end to what God can do. So Jesus encourages his disciples to have a wholehearted, sincere trust in God. The sovereign ruler of the universe. The one who gives good things to those who ask him. Now, we look at these verses in the last paragraph of Mark 11. And everybody knows, everybody knows kind of the elephant in the room with these verses. At least most of us do. We know that there are groups who take these verses and ones like them, take them out of the context that they come in, and say things like, if you have a physical ailment, but have enough faith that God will heal you. And if he doesn't heal you, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Now, Jesus means to come, for us to come to God with huge confidence in his power and God's love, but we also have to keep in mind that this just isn't all that the Bible teaches about prayer. It's just not. Jesus is not giving a comprehensive lesson about praying. So I think we have to keep in mind three truths. Just from this passage, we can get a little hints from them. Three truths from coming to prayer and having this confidence. Real quick. First, we have to have faith in the right object. Faith in the right object. As Jesus says here, who does he say our faith is in? Faith is in God. He does not say that our faith is in an outcome. Our faith is in God. So from Jesus' own example, we see him praying for the Father's will to be done, which means that when we have faith in God, we don't get to pick and choose what attributes of God we have faith in. We say we have faith in God's power, that he can do anything. But we also have faith in God's wisdom that he knows better than me. We have faith in God's goodness, but we also have faith in God's holiness. And so, which we have faith in God that he can give us the outcome we ask for, but we also have faith in God's wisdom and goodness to give us what we need. Have to keep that in mind in this, in this passage. So second, quick truth. We need to pray so for the right object. We need to pray, secondly, for the right requests. Right object, right requests. So when Jesus says, verse 24, whatever you ask, he doesn't go on to define what he means by whatever. But other places in the Bible do. 1 John 5 says that we ask God for what's in accordance with his will. So we ask God for outcomes that will honor him, not outcomes that would, are, are selfish. So right object, right requests. Third, we need to pray in the right way. Pray in the right way. We saw in the book of James how we can pray with selfish motives. 
Here, Jesus says our prayers must not only be filled with faith and be guided in the right direction, but they also must come from a heart that is forgiving. We have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend that mercy to other people. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of our sin that we ask forgiveness for if we hold on to grudges and bitterness against others. So we have faith in prayer in the right object. We pray for the right requests. We pray in the right frame of heart. Friends, are you developing the kind of prayer life that reflects this, that reflects your confidence in Jesus? Lord, help us with this. So summing up the passage as a whole, the one we have faith in is the one who has fulfilled God's promises, redeemed our mess, carried our sin, brought us back to our creator. The new and true temple, final sacrifice, the final great high priest. And the more we see of this one who is Jesus, the more we can have the kind of faith he commends for us here. A kind of faith that has a heart to live out our mission he gives to us and not to be distracted from it. A kind of faith that has this confidence in him expressed in prayer as he closes out this section. At a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. He understood that the hope of Jesus shouldn't be kept to himself and that that's not God's intention for his people. This young man was interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do that without consulting you or me. Well, this didn't stop the young William Carey's confidence in the Savior. This did not stop his confidence in his Savior's work of redemption through his death and resurrection. Neither did it stop William Carey's conviction to take up the mission that he gave to his people. William Carey ended up in India, where he spent his life translating the Bible into Bengali and other Bengali dialects. And after 20 years, the Lord raised up over 1,500 Christians in that region where Carey went to. I share about William Carey because I think his most famous quote fits well the kind of perspective Jesus wants us to have here. The kind of perspective that we should have in light of all who he is, being the new and true temple, restoring us to peace with God. Perspective summed up like this. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things from God. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for all you are and all that you've done. Lord, thank you for not leaving us in the mess that we have made. My goodness, Lord, we make messes every week. We need your grace to redeem us every hour. And Lord, we thank you that the work to restore us to peace with God is done. That the curtain is torn from top to bottom. That we can draw near because of you. God, help our faith in this. Give us the focus you've called us to. To devote ourselves to the mission you've given to us. Not to be distracted from it. 
to have faith in you, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Faith that is confident, that knows that you can do anything, and that expresses itself in prayer. Lord, we cannot do this without you. Please help us. In Jesus' name, amen.